This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Tables listeners. Thank you for joining us back on the show this week. I'm joined by Dr. Fraser Pollard, as you know him from last season. He's a family physician at the Trenton Memorial Hospital. And I'm Kieran Quinn, your host, a fellow in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. Fraser, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Kieran. It's been a few months, eh? Yeah, it's, we've had a nice summer break, and now we're back on to the full-fledged pace of the rounds table recording schedule. We appreciate you having you back on here. Today, I'm going to talk to you about BNP and heart failure therapy, but first, I'm going to give you the spotlight. Introduce your article for us, Fraser. So my study was published in New England Journal of Medicine uh, just this past summer in July, and it was looking at aspirin versus placebo in uh, pregnancies at high risk for preterm preeclampsia. So what's the bottom line for this study? So this was a placebo-controlled, double-blinded, randomized controlled trial. Had about 1,800 women who were all at high risk for preterm preeclampsia, and they were treated with ASA 150 milligrams daily. And they found that compared to placebo, the rate of preterm preeclampsia was significantly lower. Lowers my blood pressure. All right, Fraser, let's get into the methodology. I hope it's fairly simple, but take us through the design of this study and where it take place. So it was a multi-center trial. Uh, it was in the UK, or started in the UK, but they expanded to Spain, Italy, Belgium, Greece, and Israel. And it was a straightforward, double-blind, randomized controlled trial done in maternity hospitals in those countries. Okay, so we're looking at a European population of women at maternal centers. Tell me, Fraser, who, who did they include in the end? Uh, what was their inclusion and exclusion criteria? So they were looking at women who were 18 and older. They had to have a live singleton pregnancy when they were scanned at 11 to 13 weeks, and they had to be high risk for preterm preeclampsia, according to a screening algorithm they used uh, for the study. Women that were included were those who were severely ill, had severe mental illness, had any fetal abnormalities, or really any absolute contraindications to the use of aspirin. Those were women who were excluded, did you say? Sorry, yeah, those were the exclusion criteria. Yeah. And tell me about this screening uh, algorithm that they used. So the screening algorithm, when you read it, they looked at maternal factors, but also mean arterial pressure, uterine artery pulsatility index, maternal serum pregnancy-associated plasma protein A, and placental growth factor. So not stuff that you're ordering with your general screening blood work for a pregnant patient. And using that, they developed a score as to whether or not you are high risk. Right, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the routine screening ultrasounds give you those Doppler indexes unless you specifically ask for them either. Uh, no, not the ones that I'm getting at least. Right. Okay, so we have some concerns about how this is going to apply externally or the external validity, but... Either way, it's a well-designed trial, it sounds like. Tell me about what specifically the intervention was to help reduce preeclampsia. So the intervention was taking aspirin, 150 milligrams by mouth, or an identical placebo, nightly, starting at about 11 to 14 weeks until 36 weeks, or uh, if the onset of labor was before then, you would stop the aspirin at that point. Right. And what were they measuring as far as their primary outcomes? The primary outcome was delivery with preeclampsia before 36 weeks of gestation. And they did have a few secondary outcomes. And really, they were looking at adverse outcomes of pregnancy beyond the preeclampsia. And then they were looking at stillbirth and fetal complications and also neonatal death and neonatal complications. 
But the study was empowered to look at those things. They were just things they were tracking along with the main primary outcome. On aspirin, do they do they assess any safety outcomes with regards to bleeding and, and the possibility of aspirin use? So when looking at the study, most of the secondary outcomes were looking at the ones I'd listed, like stillbirth. And they also did go further and look at things like abruption. But uh, this is a fairly low risk group for uh, bleeding. So they didn't include that in this uh, study. And that makes sense. I guess 20 to 30 to 40 year old women on aspirin aren't high risk for bleeding with regards to that. Excellent. Fraser, tell us exactly what happened. I'm primed. I'm ready to go. So the results show that in the ASA group, preterm preeclampsia occurred in 1.6% of the population. And in the placebo group, it occurred in 4.3% of the population. Uh, that's a statistically significant difference. And when you look at the absolute risk reduction, it's just less than 3%. And when you go further and look at the difference in the pregnancy complications, adverse fetal or neonatal outcomes, there's nothing that is significantly different. Keeping in mind, though, that it wasn't really powered to look at those and, and assess the complications from ASA use during pregnancy. The primary outcome was significant, and I think that's significant overall, given the clinical outcome that they're looking at. Fraser, anything else uh, you wanted to talk about with regards to some of the findings or observations or points you wanted to make? I think the, the one point is that this is a really accessible treatment. So the cost and the access to aspirin is obviously very reasonable. And so if it, this is a treatment that's effective, um, it's something that we should be we should be doing. There's, there's no delay in getting this approved or getting the cost down or getting it, it's there and it's ready to use right away. So in, in that sense, it's really easy to implement. But going back to the screening algorithm we were talking about for who was at risk for preterm preeclampsia, the algorithm they used involves some things like the uterine artery pulsatility index, um, the maternal serum pregnancy associated plasma protein A, things that I'm not routinely getting. So it makes the external validity, it's a little bit difficult to assess because I don't know, you know, who I'd be getting those tests on and whether there's a better algorithm I can use or screening protocol that I could then use to uh, apply for who I would give aspirin to. Right. And Maybe a better design would have been to use sort of clinically accessible risk factors for preeclampsia, which are known, to generate some sort of a score. But, you know, I guess in a research context, what they're really trying to show, you know, they have that accessibility. It's that balance between the internal and external validity of a study that sometimes aren't always congruent. Is it a good study? Is it well designed? It made the New England Journal of Medicine. Any concerns? Yeah, I think it's perfect for what it's set out to do. I don't see any, any major flaws in it. Yeah, and as we've seen with covering these randomized trials before, they, it's uh, when you make the New England Journal of Medicine, you are generally making sure that all of your tick boxes on the Cochrane assessment tools are there. And they, of course, do all the right things in this randomized trial. The last thing I would say is just for those that are interested, the uh, although the low event rate exists, you start to see some separation in the curves in and around 28 to 30 weeks as far as incidence of delivery with preeclampsia. So very interesting primary study. Fraser, who were the patients in this study? So that even though I know you raised limitations around how to apply it, what does the typical patient look like? Their typical patient is a woman, obviously, and about 30 years old. The BMI they had was in the 20 to 30 range, so they're not necessarily women that are obese, and they're non-smokers with relatively few comorbidities, but at the same time still high risk for preterm preeclampsia. So to be honest with you, excluding the high risk for preterm preeclampsia, that 
first part of the description describes pretty much every single woman I have in my practice who, who's pregnant. And then really the difficult part for me, as we've talked on, would be figuring out who those are that are at high risk for the preterm preeclampsia. Yeah, I, I think that's the, you know, we don't need to belabor the point too much, but I think that's bang on. That's the major limitation. If you look at that table one, as far as the risk factors that we would identify clinically for preeclampsia, it's really just that they're nulliparous women. Low smoking rate, low history of essential or chronic hypertension on the background, low other comorbidities like diabetes, all of those things that really, when somebody like that walks through your door, you you think, this woman is at high risk for preeclampsia. And it sounds like a lot of it comes from their nulliparous status in addition to these biochemical and radiographic findings that they're incorporating to create this score. So Fraser... Tell me, what do you think the main takeaway is here? What's the message that our listeners should hear? They should hear that if you have a patient who is at high risk for preterm preeclampsia, you can significantly reduce the risk of developing that complication if you give them 150 milligrams of aspirin once a night, starting at about 11 to 14 weeks. Pretty important. Aspirin is an incredible drug. Well, before I get into my article, this year, every month, our segment specialist, Shaliza Halani is going to give us a five things to know about on interesting and emerging topics and occasionally topics that are just so common and critical in medicine that may have some important points to clarify for our listeners that we thought we would cover those topics as well. So watch out for these this year. And it is my pleasure to introduce Shaliza, who is going to tell us about heart failure. And then I'm going to talk about heart failure after. Welcome back, listeners, to the first special segment of the 2017-2018 season. I'm Shaliza Halani, the director of special segments. I'm joined by Emily Hughes, the producer of the show. We are both medical students at the University of Toronto. Hi, Shaliza. It's great to be back on air together. What are we covering today? We're chatting about heart failure, and today I'll be explaining five things to know about pharmacologic treatment of heart failure. Heart failure remains the number one reason for admission and readmission to hospital and has extremely high mortality rates. In this segment, we are going to cover some basic terminology used to classify heart failure and the pharmacologic management that is dependent on these terminologies. Sounds great. Let's start with the terminology. Can you take us through some key definitions? Of course. So heart failure, according to the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines, is defined as, quote, an abnormality of cardiac structure or function leading to failure of the heart to deliver oxygen at a rate commensurate with the requirements of the metabolizing tissues, despite normal filling pressures or only at the expense of increased filling pressure, end quote. Heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, or systolic heart failure, is defined as an ejection fraction of less than or equal to 40%, and it is in this group that efficacious therapies have been identified. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or diastolic heart failure, is defined as an ejection fraction greater than or equal to 50%, and efficacious therapies have not been identified for this group. Hypertension remains the most common cause of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction from population-based studies and registries. We commonly distinguish between these two types of heart failure using an echocardiogram. Are there any other important distinctions to make? Patients who have had heart failure for some time are often said to have chronic heart failure. A treated patient with symptoms and signs, which has remained generally unchanged for a month, is said to be stable. When chronic stable heart failure deteriorates, the patient may be described as decompensated, and this may happen acutely and lead to admission, and this has prognostic importance. Good to know. 
So what classifications exist for heart failure? So the New York Heart Association, or NYHA classification system, is a method used to categorize patients with heart failure based on their functional status. We arrive at these classes by combining different criteria such as self-reported walking distance, difficulty in climbing stairs, ability to walk to local landmarks, breathlessness interfering with daily activity, and or breathlessness when walking around the house. So class one indicates no limitation in physical activity. Class two would be slight limitation. Class three would be marked limitation in physical activity. And class four would be an inability to carry on any physical activity without discomfort. And in these patients, symptoms of cardiac insufficiency or of the anginal syndrome may be present even at rest. Okay, I definitely think I've heard of that classification system before. Uh, Can heart failure also be graded based on severity? Definitely. So in this case, we use classes A to D. And this is another way to categorize patients based on objective evidence available for disease. An example of this would be severe obstruction of the left main coronary artery on catheterization or a large pressure gradient across the aortic valve. Class A would be no objective evidence of cardiovascular disease. Class B would be objective evidence of minimal cardiovascular disease. Class C, moderately severe cardiovascular disease, and class D being objective evidence of severe cardiovascular disease. Okay, so now that we've covered some basic definitions, let's get into the meat of this segment and talk about management. What are some recommended lifestyle modifications for individuals with heart failure? Great question. So regular physical activity is recommended for patients with stable symptoms and impaired left ventricular systolic function. It is recommended that they do exercise training three to five times a week for 30 to 45 minutes per session, and this should be considered for stable NYHA class two to three heart failure patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 40%. Additionally, all patients with symptomatic heart failure should restrict their dietary salt intake to a no added salt diet, which means two to three grams per day. Patients with more advanced heart failure and fluid retention may be advised to restrict salt intake further to 1 to 2 grams per day, which is a low salt diet. We would also do daily morning weights in heart failure patients with fluid restriction or congestion not easily controlled with diuretics or those with significant renal dysfunction. We also recommend fluid restriction of 1.5 to 2 liters per day in those with congestion not easily controlled with diuretics or if they have severe renal dysfunction or hyponatremia. Okay, sounds great. Let's move on a bit to pharmacology. I assume there are different approaches to the management of chronic versus acute heart failure. Can you tell me about them? Yes. Let's start with the pharmacologic treatment of chronic heart failure. If the left ventricular ejection fraction is greater than 40%, you treat the cause, whether that is hypertension, ischemia, or any other cause. All heart failure patients with systolic left ventricular ejection fraction less than 40% should be treated with an ACE inhibitor such as ramipril or perindopril or an ARB if they're intolerant, unless a specific contraindication exists. These patients should also be on a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist such as spironolactone and a beta blocker such as bisoprolol or metoprolol. Beta blockers are to be used once patients are stable. If the New York Heart Association classification is between 2 and 4 and patients are in sinus rhythm with a heart rate greater than or equal to 70 beats per minute, you can add an agent called evabradine and switch the ACE inhibitor or ARB to LCZ696, which is an ANRI, also known as an angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor. If patients are in sinus rhythm with a heart rate less than 70 or they have atrial fibrillation or a pacemaker, you just switch the ACE inhibitor or ARB to LCZ696 for eligible patients. 
Now, if the NYHA class is between 1 to 3 and the left ventricular ejection fraction is less than 35%, there's actually a separate algorithm to be considered regarding implantable cardiac defibrillators and cardiac resynchronization therapy. If patients are NYHA class 4, you consider hydralazine and nitrates. You refer for advanced heart failure therapy, whether that's mechanical circulatory support or a transplant, and you do an advanced heart failure referral. Medications such as diuretics, inotropes, or digoxin do not actually improve survival, but they may help with symptoms. Medications that have actually shown to improve mortality include ACE inhibitors or ARBs, beta blockers, aldosterone antagonists, and hydralazine plus nitrates. Hey, that's an important point to note that some of these medications that are prescribed do help with symptoms, but not necessarily for survival, something to keep in mind as clinicians. So lastly, let's move on to the pharmacologic treatment of acute heart failure. How is acute heart failure managed? Great question. So when it comes to acute heart failure, we do general supportive care with frequent monitoring and telemetry if patients are unstable. We also give supplemental oxygen and monitor urine output. Of course, we want to evaluate for a precipitating cause of this acute heart failure. In volume overloaded patients, we manage with diuretics, typically IV furosemide bolus, dose dependent, of course, on their renal function. In moderate to severe renal impairment, you would consider IV vasodilators. In patients with a low cardiac output and a systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury, one would consider positive inotropes such as dobutamine and milrinone. A very interesting summary of the management of a very common condition. Thanks for putting this segment together, Shaliza. I really look forward to more special segments from you. Thanks, me too. Thanks, listeners. Shaliza, that was great. Thank you so much for covering that important topic. We certainly do see a lot of confusion around the terminology of heart failure, and it's helpful to know about some of the changes that have happened with therapies, pharmacologic therapies, over the past few years. On that note, I'm going to guide you to the article that I chose for this week, which was published in JAMA in August of 2017 by Michael Felker. And really, this looked at the effect of using BNP or ProBNP to guide heart failure therapy versus good old-fashioned clinical acumen. Okay, Kieran, just based on the title, that sounds like something that's relevant to pretty much any specialty in medicine. Heart failure is always a big concern. So why don't you talk us through the main point of this article? Yeah, the bottom line, Fraser, is that this is a randomized trial of almost 900 individuals who had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, who received BNP-guided therapeutic strategies versus usual care, and ultimately they found that there was no difference in the time to first hospitalization following enrollment in the study, nor did they find any differences in cardiovascular mortality. Ultimately, these findings from this trial didn't support the use of BNP-guided therapy for management of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Okay, that's interesting. So how did they uh, design the study? So this was an unblinded multicenter clinical trial. Unblinded because you had to know somebody's BNP to be able to use it to guide your treatments. And they conducted it between January of 2013 and September of 2016 at 45 clinical sites in the United States and Canada. Uh, Who were the patients they led into the study? Yeah, pretty simple inclusion and exclusion criteria. You were included if your left ventricular ejection fraction was less than 40%. You had an elevated NTBNP or BNP of 2,000 picograms per mil or 4,000 picograms per mil or greater, respectively, within 30 days. And that you'd had a heart failure event, quote-unquote, within one year. 
and that meant that you had visited the hospital, the emergency department, or you were hospitalized for heart failure or required IV diuretic therapy as an outpatient. And then the exclusion criteria were that you'd had an acute coronary syndrome or been revascularized within 30 days, so that perhaps your reduced left ventricular function was just a a stunning consequence of this event and may recover, i.e. that you had truly reduced ejection fraction chronically. Uh, Also that you had cardiac resynchronization therapy within three months, so a device put in. Um, If you had end-stage renal disease, you were excluded. And if you were anticipated to have a heart transplant or mechanical support within 12 months, which would ultimately be the sickest of the sick, they excluded them from this trial because those patients really wouldn't be looked after by you or I most likely, but more skilled heart failure uh, specialist. Okay, fair enough. So what were the actual interventions for the trial? So ultimately, the objective was to answer the question whether an amino terminal pro-BNP or B-type natriuretic peptide, which by the way are biochemical markers of heart failure that predict severity and adverse outcomes. They wanted to know if using these biochemical tests as a treatment strategy uh, improved overall clinical outcomes versus usual care in high-risk patients with heart failure who had a reduced ejection fraction. So they randomized in a one-to-one fashion individuals to a BNP-guided strategy or usual care. If you were in the BNP-guided strategy, which which there's about 445 individuals, they were trying to achieve a target NT pro-BNP of less than 1,000 picograms per mil. Um, And the physician was given free reign to use therapies to achieve that goal. If you were in the usual care group, you had your heart failure care in accordance with published guidelines. They used the most recent American Heart Association guidelines. And they really tried to emphasize to titrate proven neurohormonal therapies like ACE inhibitors and beta blockers for heart failure. They also discouraged serial measurements of BNP and NT pro-BNP in the usual care group. What about the use of diuretics as far as therapies are concerned? Yeah, good question, Fraser. So diuretics were encouraged to be used as a second choice to chronic therapies unless there was obvious evidence of congestion, so sort of pulmonary edema on an individual, then they were you know, free to use diuretics. But they were really trying to get them to use the, the established chronic therapies that have known mortality benefit. The only other thing I'll say is that uh, all patients had blinded measurements of BNP at each visit, but only those in the BNP group were revealed to the MDs. And then they visited the physician at two and six weeks initially, and then every three months, unless the therapies were adjusted. And then they were seen every two weeks after to reassess how they were doing after their therapy was adjusted. Okay. What was the primary outcome they were looking at? Primary outcome was a composite of time to first hospitalization or cardiovascular death. And patients were followed for 12 to 24 months. It ended up being a median of about 15 months of follow-up. And they adjusted this primary outcome for age, sex, your actual ejection fraction, your BNP level, Um, and whether you had diabetes or not. The secondary outcomes they looked at were the individual components of the primary outcome. Plus, they looked at all-cause mortality, total hospitalizations for heart failure, how many days you were alive. They also measured health-related quality of life uh, and then looked at some cost stuff like resource utilization, cost-effectiveness, as well as safety outcomes. So very, very broad and robust uh, secondary outcomes that they're looking at. Lastly, they had safety outcomes that looked at symptomatic hypotension, bradycardia, as well as hyperkalemia and worsening renal function. 
So I think a very relevant, applicable, and important set of outcomes that they've assessed in this trial. What were the main findings of the study then? So as I mentioned, just under 900 patients were randomized, but 450-ish in each. Now, in, I'm going to point out that that was actually 81% of the planned enrollment, which was you know, way how they had powered their study for sample size calculation, because the Data Safety and Monitoring Board actually stopped it early and said there's, there's no way that this is going to be effective even if you enroll the 20% more patients, so stop. And these individuals who enrolled had your typical heart failure risk factors. They were on decent medications, the chronic medications at baseline. The median ventricular ejection fraction was 25%. And the BNP levels were about 2,600, which if you remember, their inclusion criteria would be greater than 2,000. So it all fits. Okay, so what were the event rates? Well, a very sick population, 15% of the individuals in each arm died, and 30% of individuals in each arm were hospitalized. So a very tenuous, sick population, a lot of events in this uh, trial. So in that context, what were the primary and uh, secondary outcomes? So they didn't find any difference in the primary outcome of hospitalization or cardiovascular death, nor did they find any differences in the secondary outcomes. Those were the ones that were specific to hospitalization, time alive, all that kind of stuff. The economic findings and the quality of life findings are not reported in this trial. Those are still to come. Um, and who knows what they're going to show. And um, I think the quality of life and economic analysis will be very interesting to see, but not reported. So no differences in any of the primary or secondary outcomes. No differences in BNP levels uh, overall. But I will say that both groups, whether you were in the BNP-guided therapy or the usual care, had a reduction of their BNP levels by about 50%. And the adverse events that I mentioned were low and balanced in each group. So really overall, not that much to find as far as the differences between these strategies. Yeah, only 45% of the patients achieved a BNP level of 1,000. If you remember, that was the target they were trying to do as far as the intervention. And they didn't even get half of them down to that point. Um, we, don't, we don't know why this occurred. That the trial didn't assess that. But prior studies that used BNP-guided therapy that were sort of observational studies found differences in important primary outcomes like this one, but they had huge differences in their drug rates. In other words, I'm wondering if one of the reasons that they didn't find a difference in this trial is that the rate of appropriate chronic heart failure therapies was so high at baseline, despite the fact that the target dosing was so low. Okay, so on the balance, is this a good study or a not-so-good study? Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, it's... Like if you get into New England, if you get into JAMA and it's a randomized trial, it, it meets all the appropriate randomization, concealment, sample size, blinding, etc. that are paramount to a high quality trial. Okay. And the, the main learning point for this article? I mean, you got to say that strictly using BNP to guide therapy doesn't achieve benefit over our good old fashioned clinical acumen. But as I mentioned, I think you know, this trial highlights that we really struggle to get our patients on heart failure meds at clinically proven therapeutic doses. And I don't think that you should dismiss BNP as a tool because we know that it's got prognostic value. And I often use it as a validation when I make changes to ensure that I'm, you know, symptomatically making them better, but also there's some objective measure that I can say, all right, their BNPs come down, I'm heading in the right direction. So Fraser, let's move on to my favorite part of the show. I'll guide you there as it would be to the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. Fraser, what's catching your eye this week? 
Uh, there is an article, this is actually going back to June 2017 in Scientific American called Revenge of the Super Lice. And what they've found is about two-thirds to three-quarters of lice are actually uh, resistant to the therapies that we use over the counter. So there's actually a chain of doctors popping up in the U.S. and there's one in Canada too. They call themselves lice doctors. And they're basically technicians that go around and take lice out because the therapies we have don't work anymore. A little bit, you know, similar to antibiotic resistance. But with lice, you know, so it makes people's skin crawl a little bit more. And for someone like yourself with recurrent lice infections, uh, <laughs> it's an important thing to keep in mind. <laughs> Too much information, Fraser. Uh, but I would lice to see one of those physicians. Oh, That's also just gross. <laughs> my segment I'm going to title Close to My Heart. Not about lice, thankfully, but an interesting article published in The Atlantic recently that talks about an initiative that reunites heart transplant recipients with their former organs for the purposes of education and therapy. So in 2014, there's this program called the Heart to Heart Program, started by a Dr. Roberts, and he invites cardiac transplant patients to see and hold the hearts that came out of them after they undergo their cardiac transplantation. The educational purpose behind this is to improve compliance with healthy lifestyles post-transplant. That was really what Dr. Roberts' primary goal was. But what he found was there was an unexpected opportunity to provide closure to individuals. And I'm just going to read you a couple quotes which I thought were evidence of this. So one of the patients who underwent transplant said, To see my native heart, this thing that had caused me so much pain and heartache, uh, and to be able to walk away from it, I felt victorious. In a very poignant moment, I told my new heart that I'd take care of it as best as I could for as long as I could. So Fraser, take care of the heart you got because you only get one and not very many people get two. Wow, this is a deep ending to this segment, isn't it? Deep, yeah. deep, deep Always in your a chest. pleasure to have you yeah. on the show, Fraser. And uh, we look forward to having you back soon in between changing diapers. Thanks again for taking the time and uh, we'll talk to you soon. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.